I'm going to read Luke 11, 30, uh, 37 to 44. It will sound very familiar to the passage that was read in the New Testament reading from Matthew 23. It is uh, conceptually similar. I think the occasion of that and uh, this were different. Uh, I'll refer to that uh, in a couple of places in the service, um, but uh, just wanted to let you know uh, that. And so we take it up, Luke 11 at verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him so that he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you're like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but God's word will never fade. It'll abide forever and forever. There's a difference between being suspended and being expelled. Uh, I hope I'm not bringing back painful high school memories for some of you to bring out that distinction. Uh, those who have been suspended have been suspended for a certain period of time. I remember in high school, certain members of the class would get one-day suspensions. They would get three-day suspensions. But in a suspension, you expect to come back at the end of the period that's designated. In an expulsion, you're just out with no reasonable hope of return. Wow. Hmm. To ex be expelled is just to be sent away. Now, when Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, they were expelled, not suspended. They went out with no reasonable hope of near-term return. Their losses were substantial. And I think one of their losses when they were expelled from the garden is they lost their sense of significance. In the garden, they had significance, real significance. Significance that would have satisfied their soul and ours in many ways. They were created in the image of God. When they looked at the rocks and the rivers and the animals, they could say to themselves, we and we alone are made in the image of God. That makes us significant, not just different. Uh, they were with God. That's the second re reason they had significance, right? They had a relationship with God. And that's not surprising because we often take relationship uh, as, a, as a grounding of significance. If I told you, for instance, that Jeff Bezos was a personal friend, you would... Some of you might hate me, as a matter of fact, but others might say, well, there's a certain significance that comes from that, right? 
that if you have important friends, you have significance. And of course, to have God as a friend, as Adam and Eve did, is to have real significance. A third reason they had significance was because of where they were. I speak by way of understatement to say that to be in Eden was to be in a good place. Uh, suppose I told you I lived in a 7,500-square-foot house in the western hills of Portland. You would think, whoo, grief, you know. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I, I live in the hills of West Lynn. But uh, uh, the, you would say, well, wow, that's something. Or if I said, well, I have a 75,000-acre ranch in central Oregon, you'd think, oh, what a place, you know, And if I started telling you about it. So they, they had significance because of where they were, who they were with, and who they were, but they were expelled from the garden. And when they were expelled from the garden, I believe they lost the significance of their relationship with God and the place where they lived and who they were made in the image of God. Though it did not cease to exist, it became tainted, it became marred with sin. Their nature is now corrupted by sin. And they became nobodies in one sense of the word. They became wanderers. They became what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and in a sense, they became the things that are not. And so when we come to this text, to verse 43, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. I want to look at their practices, their motives, and then God's answer or remedies for their problems, because it'll tell us about them and dear friends, it will tell us also about ourselves, okay? So, look at the text. Um, woe to you Pharisees. And you remember a woe is a kind of a pronouncement of judgment. It's a big thing. The, the, the minor prophets in particular, sometimes the major prophets, would uh, pronounce woes upon Israel for things they had done. So, woe to you Pharisees, for you love, and some of you know the Greek word agape, you agape, you love the best seat in the synagogues, uh, the most important seat in the synagogue. Uh, the, the Greek word begins with the word proto, the first seat, the most important seat, the premier seat. And often there is a most important seat. You know, that's why I sit on the front row. I'm kidding. Um, I was once, this is a true story here though, I was once in Jamaica in a slum in Kingston, Jamaica, doing some missionary teaching. And on the Sunday, uh, I was asked to preach at a church down in this kind of slum, ghetto kind of area. And uh, the missionary that was kind of taking care of me and leading me around uh, got us to the church, and I walked in, and over on the side, there were these massive, I mean massive chairs with what looked like walnut, and they were high, and they had a canopy over them. And I said to my missionary friend, I said, Woody, I said, what is that? He said, that's where you're going to sit. I said, no, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. Well, actually, there were two of them over there. I said, well, then you're going to sit in the other one. He said, okay, I'll do that. I mean, it was just like, what in the world? This mass, I mean, the best seat in the place. And the Pharisees were the ones who jockeyed for position to sit in that best seat. In Presbyterian churches of old, there would be situations where, and if I took you to a church in the Highlands of Scotland, 
there would be this uh, kind of cordoned off area, not totally cordoned off, uh, area in the front, and the elders would march in with the pastor, and they would be seated in this area, and the pastor in a high pulpit right above them uh, would be preaching. Important seats. So in the synagogues, and by the way, synagogues were places where Jews went to worship and and here, they, when they lived so far from Jerusalem, they couldn't get to the temple, they would build synagogues when they had ten families or more. And, and so they had an important seat, it seems. And the Pharisees loved this most important seat. And, and of course, what we love is what drives us and what motivates us and controls us. And for them, it brought solace to their souls, their insignificant souls. And it touched them deep down and made them feel important. And they labored long and hard to get in the good seats because it made them feel significant. It made them feel like they were somebody. For a while, it made them forget the hollowness of who they were as those who'd been expelled from the presence of God. Well, we have similar things today. Teens want to date the right person, to wear the right clothes, to have the right ink. Adults want to drive the right car, live in the right house in the right part of town, and know the right people and be members of the right club. We seek significance in money and power and achievement and conquest and control and beauty, and you fill in the blanks. We seek significance because we were made to be significant. I'm not going to tell you it's wrong to want to feel significant, but I'm going to tell you there's only one way that you can really feel in the depths of your soul that you're a significant person. These things I've just mentioned will not work. They won't work for the Pharisees. They won't work for us. They don't deliver. They can't give you the real and lasting, soul-satisfying significance that your heart desires. All they will do for you, listen carefully, is enslave you and make you an idolater. Because when we take that which is not God and treat it as if it is a God for us, that is idolatry. It says they loved, again, the same word, they loved greetings in the marketplaces. The Greek word is agora. If you went to Athens, one of the places I think you would go to is the ancient agora or the Roman agora, which is kind of tangential to it. The agora was a marketplace. Yes, it was a marketplace. You could buy food and clothing and the things you needed there. But it was also a place to hang out and to see and to be seen. It was a gathering place for society. Uh, in the ancient Agora in Athens, there's the tholos, which is the seat of democracy as we know it in the West. And people gathered in the marketplaces, and they had these uh, planned out greetings, you know. And some were flowery and pompous and loud, so that people would think, well, if you get a greeting like that, you must be somebody. And these greetings carried within them a sense of significance. 
Why did they love the best seat in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplace? Because they were significance junkies. They were significance junkies, just like all of us. I want to read a quote, um, an astounding quote by that great theologian Madonna that you can find. Uh, it came from a Vanity Fair article, but it's, I'm going to read it from a Tim Keller book called Counterfeit Gods. She says, quote, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My life, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended. And it probably never will. Keller goes on to liken success to a drug. Right? It's a drug. It works for a little while, but it doesn't really deliver. Some of you are overachievers, right? I was an overachiever. Um, you're, I understand overachievers. You want to be somebody. You want to be significant. You want to be known. But it doesn't work. It's just a drug. Because deep, deep down, there'll be this hollowness. There'll be this emptiness. There'll be this, I want to be somebody. Right? Matthew 23 is pretty similar to this. It's like I said, I believe it's on a different occasion. It's printed there for you. Uh, they make their phylacteries wide. Now you don't, uh, most of you won't know what a phylactery is. It was a box. Uh, and in the box, they would write scriptures on a little piece of parchment or whatever, and they would put it in the box. And so if you had a phylactery on, you were saying, I'm trying to live by the word of God. And if you had a big one on, <laughs> uh, then you would say, I'm trying to do that uh, on steroids, so to speak, right? They make the tassels of their prayer, shawl, sh prayer shawls long. They love the places of honor at banquets, the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces. They loved carrying the right Bibles and attending the right church meetings and running with the right religious crowd. But they never got past the feeling that I'm a nobody. At the risk of giving too much attention to this, I want to, in my second point, to look at a few texts that make what I've been saying very explicit. Look at 23, 5, in that it's in your worship folder, chapter Matthew 23, 5, verse, the first part of the verse. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Why do they do that? Well, you could say, well, they're proud and they're calculating. That would be true. But why are they proud and calculating? I think it's exactly what I've been saying. They feel insignificant. They don't feel like they're anybody. 
They're always aware of the audience when they're practicing their religion. They're always aware of how they look to others because they want to look good to others because they want to look be looked up to by others. And their audience is other people, not God. Friend, who is the audience before whom you live? There's an old saying in uh, dramatics or, or uh, you know, who, playing to the audience. If you were in thespians when you were in high school or something, uh, they talk about playing to the audience. I think we play to the audience, but a Christian is supposed to play to an audience of one, God. And often the audience we play to is one another. I think when the Pharisees prepared for worship, the first thing they considered was how they dressed, how they wore their hair, whether the jewelry was right, whether the makeup was right, or the lack of makeup was right, or however you want to parse that. Matthew 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Wow. He doesn't say you will have less reward from your Father who is in heaven. He says if you practice your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on this text said, There's no reward from God for those who seek it from men. It's a terrifying thought, but an absolute statement. If you have your reward from men in that particular respect, you will have nothing whatever from God. Let me put it this way very bluntly. If I am concerned as I preach this gospel as to what people think of my preaching, well, that is all that I get out of it and nothing from God. It is an absolute. If you're seeking a reward from men, you will get it. But that is all you will get. Work through your religious life. Think of all the ways you have, have all the good you have done in the past in the light of that pronouncement. How much remains to come to you from God? It's a terrifying thought. Now, astute interpreters of, of the Bible may think of back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, he says, in the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And you say, well, what's the difference? Here he says in Matthew 6, verse 1, uh, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And here it says, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works. Well, the difference is motive. And the difference is who is to be glorified because Matthew 5 verse 16 very clearly and distinctly says, see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is the difference. But the root problem is seeking significance in the eyes of others rather than in the eyes of God. Seeking significance in things that cannot deliver lasting significance to you. Seeking significance in what are for us idols. And so we must seek to uh, pray, uh, uh, please God whether we win the approval of others or not. As the Proverbs say, the fear of man is a snare. So what to do? What to do? Last point. 
Well, God's remedies are what I'm going to call four R's. An R. I'm not dyslexic enough to do that backwards. An R. Remembrance. Remember that God sees not as man sees. God looks upon the heart. To examine our hearts, to know what is in our hearts, to know what we love, to know what is motivating us, and to have a desire to glorify Him rather than be glorified by others. To remember that there's no heavenly reward for seeking significance before men and women. The only reward for that is from those men and women. Which is another way of saying that defective Christianity is short-sighted. Thirdly, remember that true greatness comes, as we're told in Matthew 23, 11 and 12, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so the glory and significance in that sense that you long for must come by an indirect route, right? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cared for you. That's a good pattern to follow because it's the pattern that Jesus followed. Who, Though he was in, in, in nature, God counted equality with God, not a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself to the point of death. And therefore, God highly exalted him. It's the path that he followed, the path that God would have us to follow. What difficulty do we have in trying to follow that path? Faith. Faith. Is it true that if I humble myself, I'll be exalted? I'd rather be exalted. <laughs> well, I understand that problem. I live in that world. I understand it. I really do. But the Bible says the way to get glorified is an indirect path, and it takes faith to follow it. Most importantly, we must remember the gospel of our salvation Justification, being not guilty, being declared righteous in the sight of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, being adopted into the family of God, written to His will, given His name, being His child, with all the significance that comes from being His child. I mean, right? I mean, kids argue about that. My daddy's better than your daddy. My daddy beat your daddy up. My daddy's something. Your daddy's nothing. Why? They're trying to get significance from that. Are they trying to, 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 uh, we, we play those games. Well, you name drop, you know, well, I know this person, I know that person, I was in this place, I did that thing. Why is it, listen carefully, why is it that those of us in, I would say, in the contemporary PCA, Presbyterian Reform situation, we know the gospel, we know the doctrine of adoption into the family of God, written into the will of God, being the name of God. Why is it that that doesn't give us the sense of significance that we should have from that? Because I think the ultimate grounding for a Christian today, if you said to me, why should I feel significant? I'm, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christ follower for years. Why should I feel significant? I, I would say it's because you're a child of God that you've been given the name of God and all those things I've just said. Why is it that doesn't work for us, for many of us? And I think it, for many of us, it's because we don't have a big enough view of God. I really think that's the problem. We, we don't have a big enough view of who He is 
and what it means to be His child. And so we go looking for significance in these petty things I've mentioned that cannot deliver, will not deliver, will only enslave us. Because we don't know who God is. We don't meditate upon His person, His glory, His majesty. And to think that He would want me to be His child. To think that He would put me under His wings in His protection. I I really think that's right. I really think that's right. Yes, we're being saved from sin. We're, we're, We're saved and someday we'll be glorified with Him. Yes, but today, today, if you're a Christian, you should feel significant because you're a child of the living God. If that doesn't work for you, maybe you need to explore what it is about God you're not thinking about, meditating on, working with. That's the first R, remembrance. That's what it'll take, this remedy. The second one is repentance. What is repentance? It's a change of mind and heart and will in regard to sin, and it's a change of mind and heart and will in regard to Jesus Christ. It's for bad deeds, bad thoughts, bad words, bad motives. Lord, I have done too many things to be seen by others. And to renounce that and to pursue God's glory and cast your own glory into the dust. Thirdly, renewal of the entire person by the Holy Spirit in the direction of full obedience by steadfast use of the means of grace by the word and sacraments and prayer. And fourthly, by rededication to Jesus and his glory. So friends, why not now? Why not today? If you're off track in this regard. I'm getting to know some of you as your interim pastor. Uh, Not many of you do I know very well yet. But one of the things I know about every one of you and every person in Newburgh and every person I meet on the street or hear about, every person has been expelled from the garden and feels insignificant and is searching diligently for significance. That, that kind of thing becomes the, the insignificance of life in this earth. I've got a sermon I, I preach sometimes called, you know, is all we are, a, a dust in a cosmic wind. It's kind of coming out of a song in the 60s which shows my age, so I don't preach it very much. But... <laughs> But, but is that all we are, dust in a cosmic wind? What are we? Who are we? Will anybody remember me in a hundred years? Think about that question. Haunting question. Will anyone remember me in a hundred years? Will I be any more than a name on a family tree? Will, will anybody know my name in 150 years? And you know what the truth of that is? Not many, if any. But if you know Jesus Christ, if you're adopted into the family of God and written into the will of God and bound for the glory of God, God will know your name. God will know your name. The God who made heaven and earth 
will know your name and nobody else will. Nobody else will. But does it matter if nobody else will? If God knows your name? If God welcomes you into his house? If God loves you and pours blessing upon you beyond what you could ask or imagine or hope for, does it matter? When we pursue significance the world's way, we always come up short. That's why Madonna, rich, famous, whatever, empty, empty. You know what I always say, Spurgeon preached to 25,000 without a microphone, and I think preached to 70 with one. I guess I'm a wimp, okay. Empty. Look at, look, at the, look at the rich and famous in this world. Look at them. Are they satisfied? Do they feel significant? No. No. Man, I know at a Baptist church in Aberystwyth, Wales, where one of the royals went to university, referred to the royals once as a, a godless lot, a godless lot. Unsatisfied, insignificant. The perennial problem for us in the church is to pursue significance by way of religious duties and religious performance. And that was the Pharisees' problem. Doing religious things so that other people will see you do them and think well of you. The Bible's answer, as I've been saying, is to, in our quest for significance is paradoxical. We must humble ourselves now in order to be exalted by God on the final day. Do you have that kind of faith? I pray you do. Trust Him. He is trustworthy. He is true to His Word, and He and He alone can give you the significance that your heart longs for. Let us pray. Father God, um, forgive us that we have pursued significance in all the wrong ways and places. We've played the fool. We've taken good things and made idols of them. We have known the pride of the Pharisees, the arrogance of the Pharisees. Forgive us of that. Help us to take our, our significance from our adoption into your family and to drink deeply at the well of the gospel and to know who we are. Lord, I pray for those gathered in this room today that don't know you yet and are wondering if this is true, I pray you'd give them the faith to believe it's true. That the only way they'll ever feel really significant is to know you and be known by you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.